and welcome to the Southcliff Podcast. We're glad you've joined us now. Here's Senior Pastor Dr. Carol Marr with this week's sermon. Hey, today we continue our study in the book of Romans and... Uh, I don't know about you, but I've kind of had a hate, love-hate relationship with this study in Romans. It's been a, a challenge for me, and then there are times when I'm really excited about what we are discovering together. Uh, this letter that Paul writes to the church at Rome, the theme of the entire letter is the gospel. And, um, and for many of us, we think we know the gospel. We've got all that figured out, and so we don't need information on the gospel. And yet, we are going to discover together today, if you've not already, uh, that there are so many facets of the gospel that we don't think about. And I believe that, that the greater our understanding of the gospel, the greater our ability to walk in the victory that the gospel provides for us. And what Paul wants us to understand, it is the gospel that gives us the power of God in our daily lives. And I believe the reason that many of us are not walking in that power is because we don't understand the truth of the gospel. Now, the first three chapters in the book of Romans are the tough ones, and so that's been a challenge for us, but we've made our way to verse 21, and we're going to finish up chapter 3 today, and these first three chapters are hard because Paul begins with a foundation, and he says, guys, you think you understand the gospel, but I'm going to tell you something. You never understand the gospel, which is the good news. The gospel, the word gospel means good news. You'll never understand the good news until first you understand the bad news. And so Paul begins with the bad news. And the bad news is that all of us are sinners separated from God. And as he begins to establish his case for that, he looks outside the church at all of those people who are sinners doing horrible things that we are just appalled at when we watch the news and the direction of our nation and all the things that are happening. And those of us within the church look out there and we say, oh, that is just horrible. It is terrible that they're living in sin. And Paul says to those people out there, he said, you are without excuse. Now, some of them out there are saying, but wait a minute, I've never heard the gospel. We don't go to church. We don't know that. And Paul said, you know what? God has revealed himself to you. He has shown you the truth to the point that you are without excuse. And what you've done, many of you out there, you have exchanged the truth that God has revealed to you for a lie. Now, we've talked about every week what that means. Exchange means I take that ugly sweater grandma gives me and I take it back to the grocery, I mean, back to the department store and I exchange it for something I want. Exchange means I take what you want for me and I exchange it for something I want myself. And so God says there's been a divine exchange. You have exchanged the truth. This is the truth is what I want for you. And you've said, no, I don't want that. I want to do what I want to do. And you've exchanged the truth of God for life. So you are without excuse. Now he knew that those of us inside the church, when Paul begins to get on all those sinners out there, that we would get a hearty amen from the church. And we would say, you tell them, Paul, because they are, they're horrible people out there doing terrible things and you know all the things that are going on in the world today. And Paul says, okay, now that I've dealt with them, let's talk about you. And in chapter two, he says, but you, in the church, you think you're better than them. In fact, you're kind of looking down your nose at all the people out there and the sinful life they live and the stuff they do. And you see yourself up here and them down here. And the very fact that you stand in judgment upon them shows that you too are without excuse. 
Because the fact that you judge them means that you believe there's a standard. You believe there's a holy God. You believe there's a God that holds us accountable to that standard and that we should pay the price if we don't reach the standard. And guess what? He's going to hold you accountable to that standard too. And Paul says, and you know what? Those of you inside this church who thinks everything's okay because you're comparing yourself to people outside, Paul is saying, you got the same problem they do. You are a sinner separated from God too. And it doesn't make any difference that you go to church every week. It doesn't matter how many times you've been baptized. It doesn't matter you were baptized as a child, grew up in a Christian home. He said, you are not going to heaven because of all that stuff. You are, here's the bad news. You are in desperate conditions, separated from God. You are a sinner. All of us. So he has really gone drill deep to get that point across because we argue with that. There's something in us that says, no, I'm good. And Paul says, no, you're not. No, you are desperately separated from God and you need a savior. Now, if you take these first three chapters at what Paul says, you and I are in a dark place right now. It is dark. It is, it is depressing. It is discouraging. And I mean, we're in a, we're in a mess and there's nothing we can do about it. Now that Paul has us there, he says, okay. Now he begins to open the door and let the light and the warmth of the gospel begin to shine in. Now that you understand that you are separated from God, there's nothing you can do about it. Now you're ready to hear the truth of the gospel. And he begins to open that door. Now he's going to open it wider and wider and wider. And he's going to tell us things about the gospel that many of us don't understand. And we've not really taken the time to develop. So in chapter 3, Paul now opens the door. So look at verse 21, chapter 3, and we find these words, but now. Now, don't you love that? Paul has left us in a dark, dismal place, and he says, but now. Now I'm going to put my hand on the doorknob, and then we're going to open the door to the truth of the gospel. Now I'm going to show you the good news. Now you're ready and he's going to let the light and the warmth of the gospel. And what I love about it is he just opens the little door a little bit so that our eyes can adjust. We've been in this dark place, so we just need to sit here for a minute, not to be overwhelmed, but let me open it up a little bit and begin to help you understand the truth of the gospel. Now, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So what Paul is saying is, hey, the, the righteous act of God to make you right with him has been revealed all the way back in, in Abraham's life when he was justified by faith to the, the in to the advent of the, the sacrificial system that all pointed toward Jesus coming. He said, so here's the, 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 the good news. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Religious, non-religious, pagan, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. There's no distinction. Salvation is the same for every person. And then in verse 23, he said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I love the fact that Paul said all, because that's not one of those words that we could ever really misunderstand. All 
have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Like the little boy in the Sunday school class when the teacher said, what does all mean? And he raised his hand. He said, teacher, all means all, and that's all all means. All means all. You don't, I mean, you, you just, you can't dissect that. It means all, all have sin. All of us in the church, out of the church, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the, for um, the demonstration, I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's, it, it is excluded. But, but what kind, by what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. For in God, for is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed, God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now what I want to do in the time that we have together today is I want, to, I want to point out three big ideas that Paul gives to us as he begins to open the door to help us understand what the good news is. Now that we understand the bad news, Paul begins by saying, hey, God justifies a sinner through Christ alone. In verse 23 and 24, the first big idea that he gives is to simply say God justifies the sinner through Christ alone. All of us have the same problem. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Paul says that we are justified by grace as a gift through redemption in Jesus who is put forward as a propitiation for our sin. Now, what he's doing in those two verses, Paul is telling us what Jesus has done for us. And to do that, he uses three theological terms. The first term that he uses is the term justified. He says that we are justified in verse 24. He says being justified. Now, the word being justified, is, it, it literally is a passive verb. And what that means is, it is someone else doing the action to us. I am justified, but it's not what I've done. I have been justified. Somebody else is justifying me. So in the passive verb, it means somebody else is doing the action. That's why he says, it is a gift. It's not something that you earn, it's a gift. Now what does it mean to be justified when Paul uses that term? Justified literally means, listen to me, it means to be declared not guilty. You are a sinner separated from God, but God has justified you, which means that God has declared you are not guilty. In other words, 
It means that God has declared that we are righteous. Now let me say this to you and listen carefully. God declares you are righteous. He does not make you righteous. You are not righteous. You've just been declared righteous. You are still a sinner. Nothing changes in our nature and our character. What changes is our standing before God. God says, you are separated from me because of your sin, but I justify you. I declare that you are not guilty of that sin. I declare that you are righteous. You are still a sinner. You've still sinned, but I declare that you are righteous and I deal with you as if you are righteous. So being justified doesn't change our nature or character. It changes our standing with God. It is an act of God whereby our sins are forgiven and Christ's righteousness is considered belonging to us. In other words, God says, okay, because of what Jesus has done, he lived a perfect life. He was without sin. I declare you righteous in the righteousness of Jesus. I'm going to take the righteousness of Jesus and I'm going to apply it to you. So he says we are justified, which means God says you're not guilty. Secondly, Paul says that Jesus not only justifies us, declaring us not guilty, but he has also redeemed us in verse 24. Now the word redeemed is a compound word, and it includes a Greek word from which we get the word um, uh, ransom, to pay a ransom. The, the idea is to be redeemed means that I have been released by payment of a ransom. That I have been taken, I have been released by payment of a ransom. But again, it's not something I do. It was somebody else who paid the ransom for me. The word redeem means to buy back. It means that God has chosen to buy me back. In fact, Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, he says, for even the Son of Man came not to serve, but, uh, or not to be served, but to serve. And then he says this, and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying, I came to die in order to pay the price of your ransom. My death on the cross pays the penalty so that you can be declared not guilty. So the righteousness of Jesus can be applied to you. You have been redeemed. His death on the cross was ransom that sets us free. Now, most of us, having grown up in the church, you're familiar with justification. It is, it, we could say it this way. It means that I, God looks at me justification, just as if I'd never sinned. God looks at me just as if I'd never sinned. He declares that I am not guilty of sin. We understand redeemed. We sing songs about redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Now, the one that we don't often understand is the word propitiation. What in the world is Paul talking about there? Well, the word propitiation actually has its origin in the mercy seat all the way back in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. 
when God instructed uh, Moses and they built the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember the Ark of the Covenant? And inside the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments and there was a jar of manna um, that they had collected uh, uh, Aaron's rod, the uh, almond rod that was cut off but continued to live. It was placed there in the Ark of the Covenant. And then there was a top that was put on the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember all the way back to Raiders of the Lost Ark, you remember. That's your picture of the, uh, of the Ark of the Covenant, right? You got the angel, the cherubim with their wings that were extended. Well, on top between the cherubim was the mercy seat. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go behind the veil of the curtain uh, of the temple into the Holy of Holies, and he would take the blood of a goat that had been sacrificed, an innocent substitute, and he would sprinkle the blood of the goat on the mercy seat between those cherubs. He would sprinkle the blood so that what happens is the law inside, inside the Ark of the Covenant, the law condemns us because the law is God's standard. Paul said all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. To come short of means that we have missed the mark. What is the mark? Perfection. None of us are perfect. We've missed it. None of us have kept the law. So we have broken the law, and the broken law in that Ark of the Covenant condemns us. But God allowed the high priest to put blood on the mercy seat so that when God looks through the blood, he sees the, he sees the broken law, the law that we broke, but he sees it through the blood of an innocent substitute, meaning that the wrath of God has been satisfied. The wages of sin is death. Well, somebody's died. God allowed the death of an innocent substitute to take our place. And that innocent substitute but means that the wrath of God is satisfied. So Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. When Jesus died on the cross, when he hung there in the brutal death that he experienced, he absorbed in his body the wrath of God on our sin that belonged to me. He endured and absorbed into his body the wrath of God that belongs to you. And Jesus died in our place as a propitiation for our sin. So what Paul says is this, salvation is a gift. It's free. But it cost him. Now he's going to, as he opens the door, he's going to drill down here because this is hard for us to understand. That the gift of God is eternal life. That God would give me salvation. There's something in us that feels like we've got to earn it. There's something in us that thinks we've got to do something about it. So Paul's going to drill down as he opens the door a little wider to help us understand the gospel. But first of all, he says, understand what Jesus did for you. He justified you. He has declared you not guilty. Now, you are still a sinner, but he's declared you not guilty. Your standing with God has changed because he's declared. How did he do that? Because he bought you back. He redeemed you. He paid the ransom in his own blood. His blood was put on the mercy seat so God would have mercy on us because his wrath has been met in Jesus. Now, the second thing that I want you to see, the second big idea 
in the story before us, or the verses before us, is this. Paul gives us, in verse 26, the purpose of salvation. He tells us why God saved us. He says, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness to the present time. Now, let me ask you a question. This is a good question for us. Why did God save us? And some would say, well, because he loved us and, and, and because he wanted to meet our need. No, the reason God saved you is for his righteousness. Your salvation demonstrates the righteousness of God. It shows us something about God. It reveals something about who God is when we look at our salvation. To, to show that God is holy and just, what he does is he passes over our former sins. That's what he says in these texts, in these verses. He passes over our former sins. He doesn't sweep them under the rug. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't pretend that you are not a sinner. He, or, but neither does he toss you aside and give you what you deserve. Neither does he send you to hell. And he could. Adam and Eve sinned. They disobeyed God. The punishment for sin is death. God could have killed them. And his wrath started over again. But we learn something about God, don't we? We learn that he is gracious and kind and righteous and what he does is he deals he doesn't sweep the sin under the rug he didn't pretend like they didn't do it there was a payment that had to be made for their sin and, and salvation reveals the righteousness of God what happened was God looked forward to the day that Jesus would come to satisfy the righteous demand of God and, and it would satisfy the wrath of God and he uses a banking term there and he says, in the forbearance of God. Now, in a banking world, the word forbearance describes what can happen in a relationship that you have with a lending institution. Let's just suppose that you borrowed money to buy a house. And so you are paying your house off. The house is collateral for your loan. If you don't pay the loan, the bank has the right to take possession of your house. They'll seize that property and take that collateral. So let's just suppose that you bought a house and um, housing market's not doing that well and, and a lot of people have, have lost their home. And so all of a sudden you get behind on your notes and the bank comes along and they've got a choice. They can literally foreclose on your house and take it away from you, but they, they may look at your house and say, we really don't want your house. We're not in the real estate market. We've got too much property already. So we don't want to foreclose on your house. So this is what we're going to do. We want to enter into a relationship with you in forbearance where we're going to, listen, we do not forfeit our right to seize your property. That is still our right because you didn't fulfill your responsibility. But we're going to adjust it. And we're going to enter into a new contract with you. We're going to let you keep the property. And what happens is sometimes they renegotiate. They, they may forgive some of the principal. They may forgive some of the interest. They may reassign a new interest to you. They never get rid of their, their right to seize your property but in forbearance, they change the rules. And so what, 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 God, what, what Paul says is that, that God entered into forbearance. 
He, he never lost the right to take your life. You have sinned against him. But he changed and entered into forbearance. And he says, okay, instead of you dying to pay for your sin, I'm going to renegotiate. And I'm going to let Jesus die in your place. And I'm going to accept his death as payment, ransom, redeeming, buying you back, and his death, horrible death on the cross, will be the acceptance of the wrath of God for your sin so that you can be without guilt. How is it that God can forgive sin and yet at the same time still clear the guilty? Well, he says, I do it in Jesus. Because Jesus is both the just and the justifier. In choosing to exercise his wrath on all, he's just. But he chooses instead as the justifier to change the terms and to say, you know what? I will accept Jesus' death as payment for your sin. He never gives up his right to exercise judgment, and he does that in the person of Jesus. So the purpose of salvation is for his righteousness. Now, let me tell you why that's important. Because we don't think about that very often. In fact, this is what I've discovered. Most of us think that salvation, if we were pushed, and I were to say, what is the purpose of salvation? You think salvation's about you. Salvation is God meeting my greatest need. Now, the reason we need to get God's perspective on salvation and not ours is because you have to have the right perspective on salvation because it impacts how you relate to God. If you think that salvation is God meeting your need, you're going to be tempted to think that that's God's purpose in life is to meet my need. And the reason many of you have never grown in your relationship with God and many, many of you have kind of abandoned your faith and you love God, you believe in God, you think you're going to heaven and I've accepted Jesus as Savior and all that stuff, but I'm not living vibrant, I'm not growing in my faith. And it's because you have a wrong perspective on God. You believe that salvation is about you and you gave up on God because you prayed and asked God to meet your needs. You brought your needs to God and you know what? God didn't pay any attention to your needs. He didn't meet your needs and you're saying it doesn't work for me. It didn't work. I tried. It, it doesn't, you know, I still believe in God. I'm still a Christian, but I'm just not going to walk in that because I, and it's because you have the wrong perspective. If we think that salvation is just about us, we're going to begin to make God all about us. And he becomes a divine Santa Claus that exists just to meet the needs that I have. And I want to tell you something, You're, you, you, you can't sustain a relationship with God. So it, it's important we understand this for his Salvation reveals his righteousness. God said, the very fact that I saved you teaches you something about me. And I want you to know me. Secondly, I think it's important for us to understand for this reason. If, if you have the wrong perspective about salvation, it will produce a faith that is unsustainable. In other words, if you believe that God exists for you, your, your faith is unsustainable. And the reason it's unsustainable is because God doesn't always do what we want him to do. 
And the minute he doesn't do what you want him to do, you're going to give up. You're going to throw in the towel. You're going to walk away. You're going to throw up your hands. That faith is not sustainable. But when we understand that salvation is not about me, it's about him. It's about his righteousness and about his glory and about him revealing who he is. All of a sudden, our life becomes about him. And our faith is founded in him. Well, the final thing that I want you to notice is this. The third big picture is that justification is by grace alone through Christ alone. That's exactly what he's saying in all of these verses. In verse 22, he said the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus uh, for all who believe. In verse 24, and we are justified by grace as a gift. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood um, to, to be received by faith. In verse 26, so that we might be, he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 24, he is saying grace is a gift. We are justified by grace as a gift. Grace literally means unmerited favor. It means that God has chosen to love you and you don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. It's not, there's nothing you do to deserve that. And, and I want to tell you something. It, the unmerited favor, meaning I don't, there's nothing we can do to achieve it. It's given. That is something really hard for us to understand. So Paul's going to drill down in the weeks ahead to, to really open the door to this because it's hard for us to receive. And so that's why Paul's going to talk about it. He ultimately is saying this. Here's the difference between biblical Christianity and religion. The difference between biblical Christianity and religion is two letters. Religion says salvation is based on what you do. Do you live a good life? Do you go to church? Have you been baptized? I was baptized as a kid. If you are trusting in salvation based on the world's mentality, it's going to be based on what you do. And you're going to always ask yourself, am I good enough? Have, have, have I? And, and you know, the question is always going to be there. How good's good enough? If I got to be good to go to heaven, how good's good enough? And, and I'm always going to wonder if I've done it. Biblical Christianity is not about what I do. It's about what he has done. It's the difference between two letters, do and done. For biblical Christianity, it's what Jesus has done. And, and, and you know what Paul says? The only way to apply this gift to our account is by faith. There's not anything I do to acquire it. I, I don't earn it. It's through faith for those who believe. It's received by faith. It's not achieved. Everything that needs to be done for your salvation has already been done. Everything that needs to be done to make you right with God has already been done. So there's not anything you have to do we just receive what he did for us 
by faith. And that's why Paul says, so there's no room for boasting. It doesn't matter what you do. It's never going to be good enough. Faith is humbling. To put my faith in God literally means that I have to say, God, I trust you because there's nothing in me that can fix this. Faith literally means, God, I'm done. I, that, 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 I, I trust you only. The gospel is humbling because it literally says there's nothing you can do. The first three chapters, Paul gives us the bad news. And he says we need a justifier before God so that we are not held guilty and face the penalty for our sin. And then he says, as he opens the door of the gospel, Jesus is the answer. It's a gift. But you have to receive it. You have to come to the place where you understand and say, God, I'm a sinner and there's nothing I can do about it. I just ask for your forgiveness. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. I just ask for your forgiveness. I throw myself upon your mercy. And God says, if you will trust me by faith, I'm going to show you something about me. I'm going to show you that I'm not a God that gives you what you deserve. I'm a God that will forgive you and restore you in right fellowship with me and give you eternal life and walk with you in power and in grace. And if you're here today and you're trusting in anything other than Jesus to get you to heaven, if you think you're going to heaven because you were baptized as a child, you are, you're living your life based on what you do, you'll never make it. Paul said, we get to heaven based on what he's done. And we receive that by faith. God, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sin. I can't fix it. Nothing I can do. All I can do is just say, I ask you to forgive me. I believe you lived and died and rose again and you're alive today. And I believe you're a gracious and merciful God. And so I ask you to forgive me. And he will. And you give him your life in exchange. You receive his. Next week, we're going to talk more about that faith. What does that look like? How do I do that? But today, you know enough to take that step of faith, to receive the gift that God offers in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the message you've given us today. I thank you for the clarity with which Paul just kind of eases the door open to begin to let us understand what the gospel really is. Father, so often today we get confused and we think salvation is connected to something we have to do. And, and today we've been reminded that everything that needs to be done to make us right with you has already been done. There's nothing left for us to do. 
but to place our faith in you, to trust you, to turn from our own sin and self to say, God, I give you my life. I ask you to forgive me, come into my life. I want to be yours. Live in me. And Father, for any that are listening today, whether in this room or in their own room at home, may today be that day that they whisper that prayer, God, I trust you. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I can't fix it. Forgive me. Give me new life, Jesus. I believe that you came and lived and died and rose again. I ask you to be my Savior, my Lord. I give you my life. And in that moment, I know you've heard their prayer. You've answered. And I thank you in Jesus' name. From everyone at Southcliff Church, thank you for joining us today. If you would like more information about Southcliff Church, please go to southcliff.com to share a testimony of how God has encouraged you through this ministry. Send an email to scpodcast at southcliff.com. That's scpodcast at southcliff.com. Click the Give button on our webpage to discover how this ministry is supported. Your financial gifts help accomplish the mission God has given us.